Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. You should. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Jim Hightower, Democracy Now!, The Black Agenda Report, Counterspin, AJ+, Bernie Sanders, The Young Turks, and activism from Strike Debt. Public education used to be, you know, public, as in an essential societal investment for the betterment of all, paid for by all through school taxes. In addition to privatization schemes to turn education over to corporate profiteers, public schools themselves have steadily been perverting the idea of free education into one of, quote, fee education. This is a product of the budget-slashing frenzy imposed on our schools in the past 15 years or so by coke-headed anti-public ideologues and unimaginative, acquiescent education officials. Beset by budget cuts, Too many school systems are accommodating the slashers by shifting the cost of educating America's future from the general society to the parents of students who are presently enrolled. Want to play a sport? Take a class trip to a museum or participate in a debate tournament? Pay a fee. Want art, music, drama, or other cultural courses? Pay a fee. Need a uniform? Pay a fee. And now comes a new level of monetizing public education. The ubiquitous yellow school bus. Yes, just getting to and from school is increasingly being treated not as a necessary public service, but as a private luxury to be billed to the families of students. Districts in California, Colorado, Hawaii, Indiana, Massachusetts, Texas, and elsewhere are charging around $400 a year per child. For the poor and downwardly mobile middle class, that's a real hit. Yet another barrier to educational access for America's majority. What's next? A daily debit card deduction for kids to enter a classroom? This is Jim Hightower saying, If our society won't even pay for bus rides, how are we going to get to the future we want for our children? It's time to reject the small-minded budget slashers, reinvest fully in public education, and get America moving again. Big wheels go round and round Kids up all over town, driving up and down the street, back seats where we all meet. You know I want to ride with all my friends inside the school bus, inside the school bus. Well, with the Obama administration asking Congress to increase funding for charter schools by almost 50 percent, we turn to a major new report that claims charter schools are already spending billions of dollars of federal money with nearly no oversight, regulation or accountability. The report was released by the Center for Media and Democracy and is called New Documents Show How Taxpayer Money is Wasted by Charter Schools. 
According to the report, the federal government has spent more than $3 billion over the past two decades on the charter school industry. But there is no comprehensive database showing how those funds are spent and what results they produce. The new report analyzes materials obtained from open records requests regarding independent audits of how states interact with charter schools and their authorizers. It concludes that the anti-regulatory environment around charter schools, coupled with their lack of financial transparency, warrants a moratorium rather than increased charter funding. Well, for more, we go to Denver, Colorado, to Denver Open Media, where we're joined by Lisa Graves, executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy. Their new report is called New Documents Show How Taxpayer Money is Wasted by Charter Schools. Lisa, welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out the key findings of your report. Thank you so much. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how much money has even been spent by the federal government fueling this industry, and it turned out the sum is $3.3 billion. And so we thought with that much money at stake, there would be tremendous controls on that spending, but our open records request showed time after time in which the federal government and the state governments have no idea how that money is being spent. And that, in part, is due to the, the, pardon me, the design of those schools, the design at the state level driven by um, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council's policies, and a number of sort of extreme policies represent a real hostility to government schools, to the idea of public schools and government oversight. And so what we saw in our records request was a time after time in which uh, no one really knew how much money was being spent uh, by the schools, how much, how much of those tax dollars was being spent on executive pay, how much money was being outsourced to for-profit corporations, but we know that this $3.3 billion has fueled an industry that now devotes millions of dollars each year to lobbying for more charter schools and devotes millions of dollars advertising on public airways for people to send their kids to charter schools, things that public schools don't have a chance to do. Public schools don't have the uh, budget to advertise uh, their benefits, um, even though these things are called public charter schools. In many respects, these operate uh, in many instances for the private sector for the benefit of CEOs and Wall Street. Well, Lisa, one of the things that your report highlights is this uh, this black hole of accountability when it comes to charter schools, that the federal government is not holding the states responsible for the money it gives to the states for charter schools. The states are not holding their own charter authorizing agencies or even the individual charter schools accountable. And, and you conclude that it's, this was not by accident. That's right. You know, one of the things we've seen over and over again are promises by the Department of Education uh, to do more to hold charter schools accountable. But what you see on the ground, uh, based on the audits, based on the Inspector General's report, is a real lack of controls. You basically have the Department of Education's uh, charter operation sort of encouraging the states to do more. Meanwhile, you have audits that show that in many instances the states have no idea where the money was spent once it went into uh, the charter school system. They don't know um, how many kids were really served. They don't know what happened to assets that were purchased uh, through our tax dollars. Um, and there's a recent report last week from the Center for Popular Democracy that shows, uh, through looking through federal and state uh, criminal fraud indictments, that there's been more than $200 million worth of fraud in the charter school industry. And so this sort of circumstance calls for much greater control, much greater restraint, rather than the 50% increase that the administration has called for for charter school funding. Um, Lisa, I wanted to turn to a mother featured in an ad released by charterswork.org. I had the potential to be great, 
but no one helped me to identify that. I was not letting that happen to my kids. Public charter schools provide a high quality education right in our community. I have a daughter that attends Achievement First Apollo, and there's no limits for her now. I voted for de Blasio, but I didn't vote for you to take my child's future. So there you have it. Of course, they're talking about de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio. But Lisa Graves, what about this? And what about um, the success of or failure of charter schools overall? Well, you know, the studies uh, that we've looked at, and we've looked at a, a huge range of them, show that overall the charter schools don't perform better than the public schools, the traditional public schools. And in fact, at, in the worst circumstances, the charter schools perform far worse. Um, you also can see circumstances in which in the so-called virtual public schools, where the dropout rates are higher, um, the failure rates in essence are higher. And so while people can point to examples here and there of success or innovations, um, the overall studies seem to indicate that we're, we're siphoning and siphoning a lot of money out of our public school system to these charters, and some people are getting really rich off of it. Some of these uh, for-profit corporations are making millions, uh, in fact, hundreds of millions of dollars out of our tax dollars and turning around and spending that money to lobby for more tax dollars and spending that money to advertise for more kids to come through these systems, even though they've had record after record after record of failure uh, in many instances by these charter schools. What we've also seen in one of the biggest uh, studies was that, uh, that more money goes to so-called administration uh, in charter schools than to students directly. And that's not a surprise when you see how these things are structured. Some of these charter schools basically outsource everything to the private sector, and then the private sector is not accountable to open records requests in Ohio, Indiana, other states where people try to figure out where the money went, how much money went to executive pay, how much money went to these for-profit operations. You can't even tell. Uh, Lisa, I want to play for you a comment by Reed Hastings, who is the CEO of Netflix. He's a supporter and an investor in the Rocket Ship Education Charter School Network. Uh, last year at a meeting of the California Charter Schools Association, he called for the abolition of local school boards. His speech was posted on YouTube. The audio is not great, but if you listen carefully, you can hear his words. And so the fundamental problem with school districts is not their fault. The fundamental problem is they don't get to control their boards. And the importance of the charter school movement is to evolve America from a system where governance is constantly changing and you can't do long-term planning to a system of large nonprofit. Now, if we go to the general public and we say, Here's an argument why you should get rid of school boards. Of course, no one's going to go for that. School boards have been an iconic part of America for 200 years. And so what we have to do is to work with school districts to grow steadily. And the work ahead is really hard because we're at 8% of students in California, whereas in New Orleans, there are 90%. So we have a lot of catch-up to do. That was Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix and a big supporter and investor in the charter school uh, industry last year at a meeting of the California Charter Schools Association. Uh, Lisa Graves, uh, your uh, reaction and also this whole issue of the long-term goal of uh, eliminating any kind of democratic process for parents and, and communities in their school boards. 
Well, if you listen closely to what uh, he said, what he said was we need to abolish the, the school districts. We need to abolish the school boards, basically. Uh, school boards are really the only way that we have democratic control, de- direct democracy over our schools. For ordinary public schools, if they want to build a new gym or a new stadium, they have to often go to taxpayers to uh, get permission to expand uh, the school system, to get you know taxes to expand, and also people can elect who's on that school board. What we see through charters and through the American Exchange Council's agenda uh, is an effort to circumvent local democratic control, to basically uh, remove control of these uh, schools, uh, these charter schools, these uh, often uh, for-profit enterprises that are related to them, um, and that's part of the design of them. When you look back at the history of this, what you see is the year after Brown v. Board of Education, when the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the schools had to desegregate, Milton Friedman, sort of the godfather of the right on the economics someone who has has fueled and supported the American Legislative Exchange Council um, before he passed away. Um, Milton Friedman uh, suggested that the solution to, to segregation was that there ought to be just purely private schools. They ought to abolish the public schools, and people could choose all white schools, all colored schools, and mixed schools. Uh, um, actually, Milton Friedman, you know... Actually, we have yes. a clip of the late economist Milton Friedman back in 2006 talking about the public school system uh, should be eliminated. How do we get from where we are to where we want to be to a system in which parents control the education of their children? Of course, the ideal way would be to abolish the school, uh, the public school system and eliminate all the taxes that pay for it. Then parents would have enough money to pay for private schools. But you're not going to do that. And so you have to ask what are politically feasible ways of solving the problem. And the answer is, in my opinion, choice, that you have to change the way government money is directed. Instead of it's being used to finance schools and buildings, you should, tie, should decide how much money you're willing to spend on each child and give that money, to the, provide that money in the form of a voucher to the parents of the children so that the parents can choose a school that they regard as best for their child. So that's the late Milton Friedman, the economist Milton Friedman, speaking in 2006, and behind him is the banner of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. So if you can talk about the significance of this, Lisa, and also you referred to ALEC, but explain exactly its role in all of this, uh, as well as the Koch brothers. So, you know, that was a speech to Alec, as, as you point out. And what Milton Friedman was saying was basically um, the goal is to abolish the public schools. This is a radical, extreme goal, and it had been his goal since at least 1955. That goal has been joined by numerous uh, billionaire families in this country, including the Koch brothers. When David Koch ran for vice president in 1980, one of his platforms was to abolish, privatize uh, the public schools. Uh, you heard it in the last presidential cycle in which the Republican candidates were competing for which agencies to abolish. They wanted to abolish the Department of Education. Uh, I've heard uh, Governor Norquist and others joke about the need to get rid of uh, public education. This is part of that agenda. It's also fueled by the DeVos family from the uh, Amway fortune, by uh, the Walmart family, the Walmart Foundation. All of them have basically wrapped their uh, agenda in this, these words of choice that Milton Friedman suggested, um, that this is about choice, when in fact... The 
agenda is uh, a hostility, the idea that there should be public schools. The um, radicals basically um, in the country uh, for a long time, including Fred Koch, who was David and Charles Koch's father, believed that the idea of public schools was basically communist or socialist, which is really ridiculous. Public schools are one of the basic innovations of America that has made our country strong and great to have universal public education for all kids. But what we've seen through ALEC is this combination of ideological right-wingers and for-profit entities and their trade groups coming together to actually vote as equals behind closed doors with legislators from across the country in this effort to privatize our schools through vouchers, through expanded charters, through charters with very few controls, charters exempted from state and federal regulations, uh, charters exempted from local regulations, charters exempted from control by local school boards. Uh, what happens at ALEC Education Task Force meetings, and that task force has been co-chaired in the past by for-profit, corp- for-profit corporations that benefit from this agenda, as well as non-profits that outsource money to for-profits, those uh, those task force meetings, unbelievably, legislators actually vote as equals on those model bills with these special interest groups before those bills are introduced in our state houses and state legislatures across the country. Well, uh, Lisa, and that's one of the reasons why we work to expose ALEC. Now, uh, Lisa, I want to ask you particularly the mention of Friedman about uh, having the money uh, uh, in the form of uh, vouchers per child rather than for schools itself. You've talked about how in Wisconsin and other states now you're getting online private uh, schools, and we're talking not just in colleges, we're talking in a public school level, uh, charging getting the same per child fee as a, as a normal public school would get. Could you talk about that? Yes, one of the most amazing bills I read after the whistleblower gave me the bills in 2011 that were approved through this corporate voting process of ALEC uh, with legislators was a bill called the Virtual Public Schools Act. Um, it and other ALEC bills basically required that these so-called virtual schools that would get vouchers or tax dollars would be paid basically the same per pupil amount as schools with bricks and mortar and air conditioning, blackboards, uh, you know, uh, lunch ladies, uh, uh, school buses, etc., um, the difference is profit. And so you have a situation in which some of these vouchers are going to support operations that have far fewer costs, in part because some of these vouchers, uh, at least in the virtual arena, are supporting schools or classrooms where there's one teacher for 50, 60, or hundreds of students. Uh, and in some states like Arizona, where they, through ALEC measures and related uh, measures, have basically stripped down teacher certification rules so that you don't have to have the traditional teacher certification, you can have uncertified teachers teaching uh, in so-called virtual classrooms hundreds of students getting thousands per pupil and meanwhile the corporations that are involved like K-12 are making millions of dollars. K-12 has gone from a, a Wall Street firm that was created in part uh, by the you know junk bond uh, Michael Milken uh, you know his that, that felon who uh, was convicted for those junk bond schemes he invested in K-12 it's gone from about 200 or $200 million in revenue uh, to nearly a billion dollars in revenue. That's almost lar- almost entirely supported by federal and state tax dollars. And so there's enormous, enormous profit to be made through these vouchers. Chicago teachers, the teachers are tired.
tired, the students dumbfounded, the budgets get cut so classes are overcrowded, streets full of violence, the blue coat is silence, so I'ma keep rhyming till salaries start rising. The movement by parents to opt their children out of high-stakes testing is growing by leaps and bounds, but remains largely white and suburban, despite the fact that black folks are the primary targets of the destructive testing regime. Almost two decades ago, the corporate world began pouring millions of dollars into a massive campaign to split the two pillars of the Democratic Party, teachers' unions and black voters. It began as a mainly Republican strategy to divert public funding to private school vouchers, an idea that was never very popular among black parents. But corporate Democrats discovered that public education could be privatized even more effectively and much more profitably through chartering the schools. Charter schools are a capitalist's dream in which the public provides all the money, private companies get rich contracting services, teachers are deprofessionalized and deunionized, and black parents lose all democratic rights concerning their children's education. It is one of the great ironies of recent U.S. history that the Democratic Party took the lead in what had begun as a Republican project to vilify teachers and privatize schools in black neighborhoods. High-stakes testing became a weapon guaranteed to fail the students, fail the teachers, fail the neighborhood schools, and fail entire school districts in largely black cities. Everybody loses, except the hedge funds and other billionaire investors in the charter school marketplace. These are the people whose interests President Obama has served for the past six and a half years. Obama became the biggest public school privatizer of all time, wielding executive power to force the states to establish more charter schools or lose federal education funds. Studies show that charter schools are not better than public schools, but they are great sources of wealth for big investors, while the public, mostly the black inner-city public, takes all the risk. But because Obama is black, and Democrats are the party pushing hardest for charters, the established civil rights organizations are urging black people to opt in to the high-stakes testing madness. Twelve of these misleadership groups signed a letter in support of high-stakes testing, including the national offices of the NAACP and the Urban League. At root, this is a battle for democracy in public education. The white parents that make up the bulk of the anti-testing movement are accustomed to democracy in their own school districts through active and empowered local school boards. They know their rights, and they exercise them. However, the whole charter school scam is based on destroying any semblance of democracy in inner-city schools, which are already under the control of the states or strong mayor forms of government. The testing regime is crafted to make local control of schools an impossibility forever and to reduce the teaching staffs of inner-city schools to temporary drones, not educators. Black people desperately need to opt out of this nightmare. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford.
As makers of textbooks, standardized tests, grading software, and more, the British-based publisher Pearson is almost certainly among the most powerful companies you know little about. A lot of their remarkable profit is derived from contracts with public school systems. Under intense pressure to keep up with the mandated testing protocol associated with the No Child Left Behind Act and the Common Core Standards, and colleges looking to stay afloat by expanding into online programs. Is the story of Pearson just a business person's dream, in the right place at the right time with the right product? Or are there elements to their success that may indicate something less than that for schools, students, and citizens? That's the question explored in our next guest's compelling investigation for Politico. Stephanie Simon is senior education reporter for Politico. Her piece, headlined No Profit Left Behind, can be found on their website, politico.com. Welcome to Counterspin, Stephanie Simon. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk first about just the scope of this company. You write in the piece, Pearson wields enormous influence over American education. How so? Well, they they have their hands in so many different pieces of the American public education system, from pre-kindergarten through K-12 and all the way up into colleges, universities, graduate schools. They even do professional licensing exams and workplace tests. And really, they've been able to expand their influence over K-12 education through their testing business. We've heard so much in the past year about over-testing and teaching to the test. You can argue about that either way, but there's just no question that since No Child Left Behind, was passed, there's much more of an emphasis on standardized tests and such high stakes if schools fail to do well on those tests. So they're constantly being marketed by companies like Pearson products to help prepare kids for tests and prepare teachers to teach to the test. And that gives the company, company like Pearson a big foothold in the public school system. Well, Pearson markets themselves very aggressively with junkets and whatnot, and they have that whole technological fix and private-public partnership glow that's kind of catnip to some in education funding. All of that might seem unseemly to some of us, but where it goes beyond that is that Pearson seems to get a number of contracts without even bidding on them. Exactly. So this investigation found that there are a number of contracts, very large contracts in some cases, that, that Pearson has gotten with school districts and with public universities without competitive bids. In some cases, Pearson, by its very size and dominance, is able to convince the local school district that it's the only one that can possibly provide the services the district needs. So the district or the university can declare that there's a sole source for this contract. Pearson is the one and only company that can do it, and therefore they don't have to go through competitive bids. And in other cases, what I found was very interesting and really is a testament to Pearson's sales force, they'll get a much smaller contract through a competitive bid process with a district or a university. And then a year or two later, the public entity is looking to vastly expand into a new direction. They kind of dust off the old contract with Pearson and say, hey, we're just going to gut what we had before, rewrite this entirely to give you vast new responsibilities and potentially vast new income, and we're not going to bother to competitively bid because it's just touted as an amendment to the original contract. And then, some might say ironically, for a testing company, there doesn't really seem to be a downside, does there, to their not hitting their own performance targets? 
Right. Well, I found that especially true in the higher education realm. Basically, Pearson markets itself, along with a number of other companies, but it markets itself as a savior to colleges that are looking to expand enrollment and bring in new revenue. So it will help those institutions set up online degree programs. It recruits the students, markets the program. It provides coaches and mentors to help students through the online process to keep them enrolled and so on. And the contracts often include very detailed performance metrics, you know, exactly how many leads Pearson's supposed to generate, how many students it's supposed to recruit, how many students it's supposed to retain. But there's no penalty if it fails to meet those targets. In some cases, the contracts actually even let Pearson raise its per-student fees if it misses the target. In other words, it recruits fewer students than it promised. That means its overall revenue will be lower, but it can raise its per-student fee to compensate for that. So that keeps the revenue flowing to the company even when it's failed to live up to its contractual obligations. It doesn't really sound exactly like building a better mousetrap. Well, you know, from the university's perspective, they're really struggling, and they're saying, we need help. You know, we can't invest all this upfront money to create a whole new program and to market it. We don't have the IT guys, the course design folks who know how to do this. So they're trusting in this private partner to help them, and some of them feel like even though they're only ending up, you know, a lot of these contracts, Pearson gets 50 or 60% of student tuition, goes right to Pearson. So the university is only collecting a small portion of it, but they feel like getting 40% of the tuition is better than getting 0%, and these online students are going to be crucial to their survival in the long run. Well, along with that tuition, Pearson also gets access to tremendous amounts of data on students. Isn't that something else that you turned up? Absolutely, and that was something that I found very surprising and a bit troubling. There's almost no recognition in the contracts of the vast amount of data that Pearson can have access to when it starts working on these online courses. Some of it is protected by federal privacy law. The student's final grade in a class, for example, might be part of its transcript that's protected by federal privacy law. But the vast amounts of data that the student produces as she goes through each course, all that can be used to build a really rich profile of a student for marketing purposes or or for product development. Now, Pearson says it does not use that data to market to students at all, but there's no way to hold them to it in the contracts. They haven't signed the student privacy pledge that President Obama has been touting as a key guarantee of student privacy rights, and their contracts don't hold them to that standard. Well, your piece has a fair amount of Pearson declined to answer questions, which I'm happy to see, mostly because the piece got written anyway. I worry that powerful companies have a kind of veto power in reporting because once they decline to comment, for some that means, well, you didn't get both sides, so your story isn't balanced or it's incomplete, when in fact the stonewalling or the lack of transparency is itself part of the story or should be. That's a good point. Pearson did make several executives available to me, and I had some conversations with them at the beginning of my reporting. As I went through, I started asking more and more detailed questions about some of the contracts, you know, which I hadn't had in my hands at the time I did those initial phone interviews. And they were very reluctant to answer any questions with specificity about the contracts and even about some business practices. For example, there's a school district in Huntsville, Alabama, that entered into a no-bid contract with Pearson for $22 million over six years. And the curious thing is that the superintendent who signed that contract and agreed to the no-bid contract is listed on a Pearson website as 
quote, a member of our team who has helped develop our products. It made it sound very much like he was working for Pearson and also working for the school district and signing the no-bid contract with Pearson. Well, I asked Pearson about that. They immediately took down that website, but they simply wouldn't answer the question as to whether they had compensated the superintendent in any way and what the nature of his work was for that company. The school district said he is not currently receiving any compensation, but they wouldn't release public records of his email back and forth with Pearson. They said it was personal and therefore not available to be released under the state's public records law. Oh my gosh. If you need a website, blog, or online store, there's just no beating the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. And chances are your real passion doesn't have anything to do with building or maintaining a website. So depending on the state-of-the-art technology of Squarespace to power your site, keeping it secure and stable, is an easy way to take the burden of the website off your mind so you can focus on what really matters. Plus, their drag-and-drop tools and professionally designed responsive templates will help you get up and running with a professional-looking website from day one. All this starts at an astonishingly reasonable monthly rate and includes incredible 24-7 customer support. You can start a free trial with no credit card required, and then if you decide to sign up for a year, they'll throw in a free domain for your new site. Plus, if you make sure to use the offer code LEFT at checkout, you'll get 10% off your entire first year and support this show at the same time. Squarespace. You should. I would describe my day as cumbersome. Crushing. Inflated. Astronomical. Overwhelming. It's negative. I'm changing something for the rest of my life. I have a total of $28,000 in student debt. I have nothing to show for my degree. I have nothing but a huge amount of debt. I have around $30,000 worth of student debt. It's kind of like a dark cloud that hangs over you. I currently have probably right around $180,000. I have a law degree, but I am not currently using it. $280,000 in student debt. And by the time I finish, I'll be at about $300,000. It brings up a lot of shame. Yeah. It's, it's hard to talk about, excuse me. Because it's, I should have known better. But what I knew is I really wanted an education. I have a 17 year old. She'll be starting school soon. I'll need to borrow for her. Will I ever get married? What would it mean in partnership? I wanted to study being a medical assistant. I really enjoyed helping people. It's, it really uh, takes a toll it, on everything. You know, I, I don't want to share with people like, I got a lot of debt. Sorry. It's, it's a, it's discouraging. It's, embar- it's embarrassing. I mean, I'm, I'm 22. Like, I should not have that much debt. I'm the first person from my from my family to go to college, and I don't have anything to show for it. I currently have eighty-one thousand dollars in debt. I didn't end up finishing my degree when I did get loans. They were never enough to cover rent and food and school because the school costs so much money itself. I 
ended up sleeping in, out of my car, which made it much, much more difficult for me to do anything at all. Education was stressed to me from as early as I can remember. Like, you know, my parents are both immigrants to this country, so for them getting a college education is like the holy grail. I do not think that education is worth it. I think nowadays you can teach yourself a lot of things just from the internet and YouTube. I don't think that I knew the full weight of what I was getting into. The smoothness of the financial aid office, the sort of crisp cleanliness and the efficiency of it didn't leave a lot of space for me to think about what I was doing. When I was living on student loans, I saved all of my receipts, then I cast them in uh, bronze. It's almost like as if my debt is like this little weapon. This is a debt rock. And so I feel like, you know, it's something that could be thrown. Um, it's also something that potentially could be worth money. It says that it'll take until 2036 to pay off my loan. Yeah. It would probably take 30 years, and that 180 would end up turning into probably 250, 275 at the end of the life term. I've seen estimates anywhere from four years if I sell my soul and work crazy hours and make a lot of money, or if it's a little bit more sane path, it might be eight to ten years. I would pay as much as I need to pay to keep my credit, like, not completely fucked. I already have anxiety, and it certainly doesn't help. I, I feel like I've missed out on being able to almost achieve like the quote-unquote American dream. White nation and nation don't walk hand in hand Like people in love in perfect harmony In perfect time and perfect melody If the United States is going to compete successfully in the global economy, we need to have the best educated workforce in the world. We need to have an educational system that says to every person in this country, and our young people, that if you have the ability and the desire, not everybody does, to want to get a higher education, you should be able to get that education regardless of the income of your family. And what's happening now, Tom, as I think uh, all of the listeners and viewers know, is we have hundreds of thousands of bright young people who want to get a college education, and they simply can't. They're frozen out of college because of the high cost of higher education and the fact they don't want to leave school deeply in debt. And then you got millions of other people who do go to college, graduate college, and they leave school with incredible debts. Uh, and if you go to graduate school, you go to law school, you go to medical school, it is even worse. I remember talking to a young woman uh, a number of months ago in Burlington, Vermont, whose crime in life was that she went to medical school and she's now practicing primary health care among low-income people, which is exactly what we need. 
She is now saddled with $300,000 in, in debt. Uh, we have a dental crisis in this country. We need more uh, dental dentists and, and dental practitioners in low and moderate income areas. Dentists are leaving school $250,000 in debt. Lawyers, $100,000 in debt. If we are going to compete in the global economy, we've got to learn something from countries like Germany and Denmark, Scandinavia, countries around the world that say, you know what? For the future of our country, we need to capitalize on the intellectual capabilities of our people. They need to get the best education possible regardless of their income. So in that regard, I have introduced this week legislation called College for All, uh, which would make uh, public colleges and universities tuition free, tuition free for public colleges and universities through a matching program uh, where the federal government puts in $2 and what the state governments put in $1. And in addition to that, as part of our legislation, uh, we deal with the student debt crisis uh, by lowering student interest rates, student debt interest rates uh, in half. So that is, uh, I think, a, a significant step forward in addressing a major, major problem in this country, providing, which is providing higher education to all, regardless of the income. So programmed to follow the program. We hardly ask questions, but today I am. Higher education is feeling kind of wasted. It's feeling kind of vacant. It's feeling kind of tainted. What does it cost for education? That's more than my hands can Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have very different ideas of how to go about solving the problem of rising costs for going to college. And Hillary Clinton is going to make that clear in this video, but she's going to use a tactic that I think is a bit questionable. Let's watch. I'm a little different than those who say free for everybody. I am not in favor of making college free for Donald Trump's kids. I'm in favor of making college free for your grandson uh, by having no debt tuition. Hmm. Okay, so now this is a tricky topic. Um, I, some uh, progressives are on Bernie Sanders' side, and they think, hey, um, Zai Jelani uh, writes about this in a s smart way as usual, uh, where he says, look, if you make it a welfare program, it's less likely to work. The reason Social Security works is because everybody puts in, everybody gets back out, mm -hmm. all Americans love it. If you say rich people are not going to get back out, they're quietly going to kill it. Right. So now everybody knows that about Social Security. So that's a criticism she, uh, that he has about Hillary Clinton's plan. Yeah. Um, and I think John has some more. But let's keep in mind that a, a lot of progressives, and I would say most progressives, uh, believe that Hillary Clinton's program in this case is more thorough and, and better than Bernie Sanders' program. I know I'm putting a value judgment on better, but because Bernie Sanders' program is um, to get rid of tuition, Whereas at Hillary, public colleges. At public colleges. Yeah. Hillary Clinton's plan, program is to get rid of all debt. So the books, the dorms, all these different things. So if you just get rid of tuition, you're still going to have a ton of debt mm -hmm. that you leave school with. So whether you, you want to put aside what's better or not better, you make that yeah. choice on your own. At least Hillary Clinton's program is more thorough in that sense. Yeah. Than trying to get rid of debt. 
Yeah, now, her, her plan certainly is more detailed at this point. And back when she first announced it, I believe that I did a final judgment about it, like congratulating her, like this is a good plan overall. Uh, at the time, though, I did say that I liked the Bernie Sanders plan better, even though at that point, I think that there are still fewer details in terms of how he would go about getting rid of, like lowering the interest rates and getting rid of the non-tuition expenses. Maybe, maybe that will eventually be part of it. For right now, it's mainly that it's free tuition, which is a lot better than what we have now, because I'm in debt still from the tuition that I paid as a college student. The thing with Hillary Clinton's plan, and I'm not saying that, that it, it isn't more progressive or that it wouldn't actually solve the problem, but her saying it's going to get rid of your debt is all well and good. Donald Trump says that his tax plan is going to stimulate the economy. Like, you can certainly say those things, and we have a lot of details. Like, we know that she's going to provide grants to states as long as they continue to invest in higher education. She's going to provide a work program that's going to require the students to work up to 10 hours per week, which is sort of similar to some systems that we have right now. But as you start to hear these, like, there's going to be a family contribution, uh, a reasonable real-world family-expected contribution, which, again, the FAFSA requires now. Simpler repayment, current borrower refinancing, some of that stuff is good. But while her plan might end up working, I don't know that it's necessarily more progressive fundamentally because Bernie Sanders is saying in the same way that you get your free elementary school, you get your free high school, let's add four more years to that. We already have this system in play. Hers is going to be these sorts of tiered systems, which sounds more like Chris Christie's social security cutoff point. And you're going to have to work, but not the richest people. The richest people aren't going to have to work. It's only the poor people who are going to have to work. And then there's the family yeah, but the contribution. Rich people don't have to work because aren't going to use it at all. You're saying they're going to pay for it. Yeah, or, or to whatever extent it might grant them, they might not have to take advantage of that, but might be able to get some of the grant money. And then with the family contribution, like my family was supposed to contribute stuff. You know what they contributed? They contributed squat because my my parents had no money. They couldn't contribute anything. So I would have to take out a loan for that to cover that, which is what I had to do in real life. No, but okay. So two, I think, important clarifications. Okay. Uh, one is that. I don't want anybody to get confused. It's not like uh, rich people in this uh, plan uh, don't have to work and get their tuition covered, and they're get their debt erased. No, no, I erased. understand that. There's going to be these tiers. The reason of what benefits that you're getting you get. your debt erased is because you're working and all these uh, other mm -hmm. things that she's putting in, mm -hmm. right? The rich don't get the best of the. In fact, people's main complaint about Hillary Clinton is that the rich get left out of the plan. Mm -hmm. And hence, it might not, they might not be incentivized to keep it going. Yeah, perhaps. Right? But like I said, we already have work-study programs. Mm -hmm. I worked throughout college. I actually got out of the work-study program and went to work almost full-time as a waiter for my past couple of years, the last couple of years. No, and that is clearly the case, and a lot of people work through college. I think what her plan is trying to do is say that uh, if you do that, then we're going to erase all your debts instead of having them ha hang around your neck like an al albatross like they did for you, and they yeah. continue to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, like it, it might it might end up being better. I don't know. I, w I would have to actually see how it is. And, and again, understand the context here. I, I'm not a big supporter of Hillary Clinton uh, overall. And in fact, I think the only two positions I could find of hers who are that are more progressive is the two we covered on the show the last two days. Mm -hmm. Gun control. She's more progressive than Bernie Sanders. And mm -hmm. and on this issue, I think she's more progressive on everything else. I believe Bernie yeah. Sanders is more progressive. But you know, and you might be able to find an. A, you know, a, you know some caveats to that if you look really hard, but I think fair is fair, and, and obviously disagreement on this is also fair. 
But uh, I think a lot of progressives like her plan because it gets rid of all of your costs mm-hmm. rather than just tuition, which could still leave you with a lot of debt when you leave school. Yeah. And, and look, r- regardless of whichever plan, if it gets put into place, they're both objectively far better than what we currently have. And I especially, as someone who's still paying off my loans, I like that she's not just thinking about for people who go to college in the future, but allowing uh, current borrowers to refinance at lower rates is going to save tons of uh, millions and millions of Americans who are still paying off their loans. And then that money gets to go back into the economy as opposed to going straight to Sally Mae or Chase or whatever, Wells Fargo. They instead will be able to spend that. And so this could actually end up stimulating the economy as well. The, the one thing that I don't like about what she said there is she doesn't mention Bernie Sanders, but she's clearly talking about Bernie Sanders or, or possibly Obama who wants to make community college the first two years free. Uh, and then saying that it's going to benefit Donald Trump. Like, that's the idea. As if Donald Trump would ever send his kids to Yukon or whatever it is. And that, I think, is underhanded and a bit unfair. And we, we're going to bring this up really fast. His kids didn't go to, there's only one who still needs to go to college, but they didn't go to, uh, uh, to a public college. But you're going to see that Ivanka went to Georgetown and then the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Please, I do declare. And then please, more. And then some more Georgetowns, some more UPens. Like, no, if, if Donald Trump really wanted to save money, they could have they could have gone to UConn 10 years ago and saved tens of thousands of dollars. No, they're going to go to the best schools that they possibly can. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, cancel all student debt. In 1994, about half of bachelor's degree recipients graduated with some debt, usually around $10,000. This year, more than two-thirds graduated in the whole, and they averaged $35,000. Americans now owe more than $1.3 trillion total in student loan debt. According to an article at Time's typically understated money vertical titled Why the Student Loan Crisis is Even Worse Than People Think, the increased burden is because government grants and support have failed to keep pace with the increases in college costs. Despite the government getting a big increase in income tax revenue from college grads, it has fallen down on the job of continuing to make those degrees possible. Forty million people are now heavily burdened by student loan debt with virtually no way to discharge it. More and more are defaulting as they choose immediate needs over a chipping away at a repayment schedule set to last several decades. 10% of people with excessive debt put off life events such as buying a home or getting married, and 20% say their debt influenced employment plans. Many take jobs outside of their field to stay afloat, work unhealthy hours, and take multiple jobs. According to the new outlet, Attention, a third of millennials report that they'd be willing to sell an organ to pay off their student debt. Over half say they'd be willing to do a reality show. Just under half say they'd sell half their possessions if that would get them close to paying off loans. And over one third would, quote, take part in a questionable health study, unquote. 
a new campaign spearheaded by the nation with partners Daily Co's, Working Families, the American Federation of Teachers, and others is calling for an end to the crisis. At cancelallstudentdebt.com, you can sign on to the demand that our legislators act now and then share it on social media, tagging your representatives and the White House. Addressed to President Obama as well as Congress, the letter simply states, quote, Americans now owe $1.3 trillion in student debt. 86% of that money is owed to the United States government. This is a crushing burden for more than 40 million Americans and their families. I urge you to take immediate action to forgive all student debt, public and private, unquote. As the Nation Action page says, this is a problem for more than just students. When people live paycheck to paycheck for decades just to pay the interest on loans they can't discharge, they are unable to buy items even those of us who are anti-consumerism begrudgingly agree that most of us need. They also can't pursue public good type jobs because a teacher or social worker will never make enough to pay off $30,000 in loans, so we're losing talent in those critical professions at a dangerous pace. The good news is that strike debt has put together an amazingly simple proposal to reallocate money and make public higher education free for all for the paltry sum of $15 billion per year. That's 0.39% of the federal budget. Certainly an economic stimulus and an investment in our future is worth that much. Let's not wait for a new White House occupant to push this simple, important plan. The full House is up for election, as always, and 34 states have elections for Senate. So now is the time to let them know that you demand action and will hold them accountable in November. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If relieving the extreme burden of student loan debt matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about cancel all student debt via social media so that others in your network can sign and share as well. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. There is another crisis over basic services in Michigan that Obama did not address. During his visit to Detroit, dire conditions under an ele- unelected emergency manager have led school teachers to declare emergency of their own. On Wednesday, 88 of Detroit's roughly 100 public schools were closed in the latest mass teacher sickouts protesting underfunding, black mold, rat infestations, crumbling buildings, inadequate staffing. Detroit's public schools are under the control of unelected emergency manager Darnell Early. He's none other than the unelected emergency manager who presided over the water contamination in Flint. He was then moved to Detroit. Journalist Kate Levy has been speaking to students, teachers, and parents in Detroit about the crisis. I've gotten used to seeing rats everywhere. Um, I've gotten used to seeing the dead bugs. I've tried to ignore all the graffiti when I'm trying to use the bathroom. But either way it goes, still I'm still bothered by these things and it makes me feel sick and and it doesn't feel good.
In Detroit, almost the entire public school district was closed Wednesday because of the latest teacher sick out. Okay, my name is Elisa Naya. Uh, I work at Clifford Academy. My daughter, Annalise, and Victor, who's marching. Uh, my son and daughter go to the Academy of the Americas. So the buildings in DPS, especially their building, the Academy of the Americas, it's an old building. Um, it's fallen apart. We were trying to move. Uh, they were trying, there was a movement to move the building a couple years ago. It didn't work. They're still there. Uh, I'm sure there's rats and mold. You can smell it when you open the door. And it's just not a, uh, not a good environment for the kids to be in all day. My name is Carl Baxter, and I'm out here to support the teachers as a parent because I have children that actually attend DPS. But when you have mold growing in the building, the long-term effects, um, it's no telling. Like the city of Flint, which is experiencing a public health crisis over poisoned water, Detroit's public school district is run by a state-appointed, unelected emergency manager. In fact, Detroit schools are run by Darnell Early, the same emergency manager who presided over Flint's change in water sources. Since 2009, Detroit residents, parents, and even the elected school board have had no say in how the district is run. Tawana Simpson is an elected school board member. Emergency management has created public safety and health crises in our school district here in Detroit. Irreparable harm is being done to our students as well as our teachers and our parents and our community as a whole. We're not able to help because of a law, PA 436 in Michigan, which allows the governor to assume all the authority of the elected officials. Since emergency management began, over 75 school buildings have been closed in the city of Detroit. Since 2009, hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars have been spent repairing school buildings that were subsequently closed down or handed over to an alternative state-run district that is currently under federal investigation for widespread corruption. Three top officials in this district have already pled guilty. Meanwhile, for many Detroit public school students, the remaining open schools are often worse off than the ones the students came from. Al Wright's son, Timothy, has cerebral palsy and attended Oakman Elementary School, which was the only school in the district built specifically for special needs students. It was closed down in 2013. Initially, after Oakman first closed, they sent Timothy to Henderson. When you get there, you pass this man-sized hole in the ceiling that was leaking for the time we did the inspection to the school to this year. And all they did was put some cones around and a garbage can to collect the water. We had fire exits that were blocked, fire windows that had security bars on it. Under emergency management since 2009, the number of Detroit public school service workers has dropped from over 2,000 to 820. The number of skilled craft workers has dropped from 405 to only 13. Jim Arini is an engineer and the treasurer of the Engineers Union, Local 324. Summer of 2014, while Detroit Public School was under emergency manager, the school requested from the uh, city of Detroit a variance to their ordinance that requires an engineer to be on staff whenever a boiler is operating. We feel that it puts the children's lives, the teachers' lives, and the general public's lives in jeopardy of a boiler explosion. 
we can kind of relate to the the Flint water crisis, the fact that we've poisoned kids in Flint under this emergency manager rule, um, and now the same emergency manager is operating Detroit public schools. Um, we're afraid that this is going to cause a, a safety issue and, and potentially uh, lives at risk. For student Wisdom Morales, the situation has created increasing anxiety. I want to be able to go to school and not have to worry about being bitten by mice, um, being, being knocked out by the gases, being, being cold in the rooms. An elected school board member, Tawana Simpson, says the crisis is a result of state control. The education is mandatory for our children here in Detroit. It's mandatory for all young people in this country. And it's not a good thing to suspend democracy. And emergency management does not care about our students. They're there for the bottom line. It's, it's a very unjust thing to try to run a school district as a corporation. We just heard clips featuring Jim Hightower on the importance of properly funding our schools through public taxes rather than individual fees. Democracy Now! discussed the misuse of billions of dollars spent by charter schools. The Black Agenda Report stressed the importance of maintaining democratic control over local schools by resisting the charter school and high-stakes testing movements. Counterspin shined a spotlight on Pearson Publishing's stranglehold on the textbook market. AJ Plus highlighted the stories of some of those being crushed by student loan debt. Bernie Sanders detailed his plan for free college tuition right before the Young Turks debated the merits of both Hillary and Bernie's plans. Our activism for today is from Strike Debt, and Democracy Now! finished the show by highlighting how the same austerity policies that caused the Flint water crisis also had horrifying effects on schools in Michigan. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, this is Sean from uh, Las Vegas. Was from Texas. I got public one before. Um, I just happened to be listening to the show and uh, for the first time in maybe a couple weeks, and it was perfect time. You guys were discussing uh, bring back solar. Uh, what's going on here in Nevada? And I do want to encourage anybody and everybody. I work for a large solar company who is in the process of fixing, calling for a special session so that the legislature can actually fix this. What's new about this is not just the fact that they've destroyed solar, destroyed any competition in the marketplace, which liberal, conservative, or all the above, everybody believes there should be some form of competition. The idea here is that they just went through and ended solar, but they also charge, like you heard, anybody who's had solar. Seven years ago, Annie May gets solar. She's now paying a lot more, even though she owns the system and has been owning it for years to come. I encourage everybody to go to bringbacksolar.com. We want 150,000 signatures before the end of the month so that Governor Sandoval, the PUC Public Utilities Commission, and the legislature realize that this is something that is not going to stand. This, this happens here. This can happen anywhere. And the idea of solar 
um, across the station to come to a screeching halt. So I encourage everybody, bring back solar.com. We've got 150,000 signatures. If you live in Nevada, we will be all around the caucuses. Republican, Democrat, please encourage, please sign, and please encourage any and all for it. Thank you. Hi, this is Chris from Dallas. I'm calling about the economic and racial injustice podcast from last week. There's something that I, it really drives me crazy about particularly liberal folks that really hate on the evil corporations and the rich people that use the government to their advantage and they do everything that they can to keep the poor people down. And all of, all of the different examples of how property owners were losing wealth here and there. People that stayed in the stock market, people that had a solid understanding of the, of the financial system and how to take advantage of it, recovered. And I understand that there are different places that you can live and there were, and there were different losses to property value depending on where you are. And, and, and I understand all that. But, you know, when we talk about college education not being necessarily the key to everything, what's missing is so much more financial education. And I know that you don't want to promote global capitalism but i mean i can tell you the most race blind solution to to solving a, a health issue that that no one can pot there is no way to have a dividend paid by a company that's been paying that same dividend for a hundred years to not pay it to someone because of their race that's how rich people got get rich is by investing that's how rich people stay rich is by investing and instead of Helping people understand that and helping them use that to build their wealth and increase, you know, increase their holdings in the world and have things get better. We we tell people, hey, corporations are evil. Corporations are holding you down. You should have nothing to do with corporations. And people get scared of the stock market. You know, people my people my age, people in their twenties, don't invest. It drives me crazy to see it. But you know, I've got people that I know that will look at the free money that they get from a four hundred one k match and say, oh no, I don't want to put it in there because I'm just going to lose it. Not if you're doing what you should be doing. You won't. I mean, yes, there's always the loss of principle. And if you go buy some podunk company that's got no real chance of success, yeah, that's probably going to happen. And you know what? I don't like working for publicly traded companies. I understand why people wouldn't. But this is the system that we have. And while you're working to change it, that doesn't mean that you can't be doing something within to benefit your family, giving, making sure that you've got something to pass on. And that, that requires stronger financial education and really for everyone not just poor people not just people of a particular race it's astounding what we don't teach people in school about important things like financial education so that's what i got Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't have much to say here at the end of the show, but today I actually have so much to say that I think I'm going to have to save some of it for next time. So first of all, yes, absolutely, please go visit bringbacksolar.com. 
support the solar industry in Nevada. The fight is on. If you heard our last episode, you know what I'm talking about. The state legislator in Nevada basically regulated the solar industry out of their state entirely. They, they bent to the will of the monopoly power company there who didn't want to pay for solar energy that's generated on private homes. And so the state legislator just said, cool, you don't have to. And it made it completely economically unviable to build uh, you know, so- solar capacity in the state. Totally ridiculous. And now they're fighting to get it back. And secondly, related to that, uh, I completely forgot that, you know, usually when I do a climate episode, I like to tell you that I have partnered with a company called Ethical Electric. They actually function in most East Coast states, and you can buy your electricity through them and have your electricity be sourced from wind power rather than uh, what you normally get, which is probably coal or something similarly dirty. So if you go to ethicalelectric.com slash best, and that link is also on my website, then you can sign up for your wind power there and support the show at the same time. little ad for you there. Secondly, I totally agree with uh, the comments about financial literacy. We do a terrible job of teaching people how the world really works, how finances work, how best to save, the importance of saving early and uh, often. And my little story to go along with that is, the first and maybe only time I was ever taught anything about sort of the basics of money management was the first year, uh, it was between eighth and ninth grade. It was the first time that I just struggled in school. Like I, I was one of those kids. It's like, it's not like I was struggling cause I couldn't do it, but I was like bored with stuff I didn't find valuable. And so I ended up not passing enough classes to pass eighth grade. So it was the first time I had to go to summer school and in summer school, where, you know, the kids, honestly, like most of them sort of were struggling with school uh, or had, you know, English as a second language or, or whatever. To those kids who they kind of thought to themselves, you know, like, let's just help these kids survive. Like, maybe they're not going to learn, you know, higher level uh, concepts. Maybe they're not going to learn, you know, all, all of the other things. But, like, let's at least teach them how to you know, balance a checkbook. Let's teach them, you know, the value of reading a newspaper. Let's teach them how credit works. And that's where I learned all that stuff for the first time. So I was like 13 learning how consumer credit works. And I think that's the only time I ever had anyone talk to me about that. Everything else has been self-taught. So uh, yeah, it's unbelievable that we don't do a better job of preparing people for how the shit actually works in society. And, and, and the one time I experienced it, it was because I was in a class of kids who the teacher sort of considered as like almost lost causes who, you know, the best we could do is just teach them to survive, if not thrive. So frustrating. And now finally, I wanted to give my own thoughts on the Hillary versus Bernie college tuition plans debate. And here's what I have to say. I hate Hillary's political tactic on this, and not just because I support Bernie over Hillary generally, and not just because I think it's disingenuous the way they mentioned on the Young Turks. Uh, I hate it because it's an attempt at good politics at the expense of good policy. The Young Turks actually also mentioned this. It was sort of a passing comment that Jank made, uh, but I'm going to highlight it more and say it louder and with more anger. 
As an example, Social Security is called the third rail of American politics because any attempt to touch it is basically political death. It is that way because the American people love it so much, and they love it so much in part because it works for everyone, no exceptions. Since it is specifically designed to be totally inclusive, it leaves no room for the demagogues to start dividing the nation into the lazy moochers versus the hard-working Americans who don't deserve to have their money stolen. When a system is universal, it has a built-in defense against those who would and absolutely will try to tear it down. And then here's another example. The reason I support the specific carbon tax and rebate proposal to fight climate change that I do is because the funds raised by taxing fossil fuel extraction would be evenly divided among every American regardless of their economic standing. And sure, maybe that doesn't sound very progressive. And yes, the rich people don't need that extra money and the poor people need it a lot more. So, hey, why don't we you know, distribute it in a more progressive way? That sounds good, but by making the system universal, we would create a societal paradigm around the idea that we all deserve to be in this together. Everyone deserves Social Security for the betterment of all. Everyone deserves dividends paid from the proceeds of taxing carbon. And everyone deserves to go to college for free because it's an American value for us to all do the most important things together, indivisible. When Hillary sets up her college debt proposal by pointing to Donald Trump's children and saying that they don't deserve the same treatment as everyone else because they're rich, it sounds progressive, but she's creating that social divide that she should damn well know will be used as propaganda to first water down and eventually destroy the policy she's claiming to be supporting. I say fuck that. If her proposal is more comprehensive and does more to help people, then great. Bernie should steal all of her good ideas. But we should have all learned lessons of the past. Universal programs have the strength to endure, while programs that are designed to divide us will be attacked mercilessly by the rich and powerful, using that divide as a wedge to trick people into voting against their own best interests based on hatred of freeloaders. We have seen this movie before, and we know how it ends. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past